Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called Revealed, a study of Jesus in the Old Testament. Our hope is that our eyes will be open to see that all scripture points to Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Well, today is the last day of our Revealed series. We spent 11 weeks uh, looking at passages in the Old Testament that foretell the coming of the Messiah, and uh, Jesus is the Messiah. And uh, we've been looking at how Jesus is in the Old Testament. And so um, if you look at the back of the message notes, uh, there is where we've been in the last 11 weeks. You can uh, just review that later, but I want you to be aware of it. It's not an exhaustive list, but in uh, Luke 24, we read that Jesus had conversations with his disciples, and he said, look, I want to show you where all the different places are in the Bible that point to the Messiah, and I'm the Messiah. And so uh, their eyes were open there. And so today we're going to talk about, in this last one, how it was predicted that the Messiah would be raised again after suffering, after dying. And if you turn your notes back over... um, We've been thinking about this claim that Jesus makes. And again, if you're following along in the notes, here's Jesus' claim that all Scripture points to me. All Scripture points to me. Now, this morning, um, I want to talk to you about how that plays out, especially as it has to do with the resurrection. But we've been using this picture. Some of you remember we've had this uh, dot to dot. And when we look sometimes at something like that, I don't... I don't know what it is for you. It doesn't make much sense to me. But if you connect the dots, then you can see something more clear. Like, obviously, this is a picture of a telephone. And what Jesus was doing with his disciples is that they were going through life, and they, they knew about the dots. They just didn't know how they connected. And so Jesus begins to connect those dots in these conversations, and now they see the whole thing differently. So all through the series, we've been saying that the Old Testament and the New Testament is not two different stories. It's one story of God's amazing redemption of our world, that God made us to know him and walk with him, but sin entered the world, and even when that happened, he foretold, he predicted that he would send one, someone one day, the Messiah, who would restore and reverse the curse of all that. And so we've been looking at that. And Jesus' claim is that that's all this is about me. And maybe you've never seen it before, but I want to open your eyes and connect the dots. So as we get ready to look at this today, uh, Psalm 16 is one of the places where the resurrection was foretold. We'll look at that in just a moment. I'm not going to ask you to turn to Psalm 16, but actually where it's uh, referred to in the New Testament. But before I do that, let me just say this. I was trying to figure out how I could um, share this with you in a way that might be helpful. And so some of you have heard my story before, part of my story. And I I don't tell my story to make it about me, but just because I'm trying to figure out how through telling that, that you might be able to see your own story. So um, some of you know that I had the incredible privilege to grow up in a home where my parents uh, taught me at a very early age about Jesus and about the scriptures. I know some of you, it wasn't till later in your life. Um, You didn't have those same opportunities, a different starting point. But my parents, my grandparents, had Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, people in our church family. And I could tell, I could tell that they... Um, there was something different about them than, than me. And that was, is that they knew Jesus. 
they talked about him like a person that they were interacting with. And I thought, I, I, don't, I don't know how to do that. But because I had learned a lot of things about the Bible, I thought, well, at least I know a lot about the Bible. But by the time I got to be 15 years old, I, it bothered me that I didn't know Jesus like they did. And it wasn't that he had to show himself to me exactly the same way, but I just knew that I knew about him, but I didn't know him. You know what I'm saying? So one night, I was reading my Bible before I went to bed. Again, it's not that I understood it completely, but I was still trying to do that. And I, I closed my Bible, and I turned out my bedroom light. And I, I simply prayed one of the most honest prayers I'd ever prayed at, up to that point in my life. I just said, Lord, I don't, I think I'd read the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. And I remember thinking, that's amazing. I don't doubt that happened. It wasn't like I was hardcore against that or anything. But Lord, even if you did that, so what? Like, what does that have to do with my life? I'm not trying to be, you know, cantankerous here. I just, I don't, I don't understand. Unless you open my eyes, unless you connect the dots, I won't be able to know you. You're going to have to open this book, open, reveal yourself to me is kind of my prayer. And so, again, I've told you this story before, many of you, but I, uh, no fireworks, no, you know, Jesus didn't show up in my room, and there was no, like, sky cracked or anything like that. But about a month later, when I was at a camp in Wisconsin, I was with about a thousand other high school kids, and in the mornings, they would encourage us to read the Bible. And so, as I was reading my Bible that week, it was like God put stuff in the Bible while I was asleep. And I didn't, I, all of a sudden, it was like Jesus had come alongside and said, now this is what this means and this is how this relates to your life. And I remember thinking, I've read that before. I missed that. I didn't get, and all, and all of a sudden I realized he, had made, he was making himself known to me. And I will be forever grateful that he did that. Now, it's, that, that's not all the story of my life. I've needed him to continue to reveal himself to me in lots of ongoing ways. But uh, it, it was kind of like this, and I want to give you just a little outline of my story in a summary, okay? So I knew the what was that it was about Jesus, you know, that I, need, that I didn't know him, but that I could know him and I needed to know him. But the so what was, uh, I, like how? Like, you know, you did all these things, or, you know, I knew Jesus, you've done all this stuff, but so what? I, I, unless, I, unless you make yourself known to me. And then once he showed me the so what, then he was going to eventually say, now what? Okay, now what? Now what do we need to do? And so um, that's our granddaughter, by the way. We're really proud of her. And uh, so <laughs> anyway, so anyway, so here's the, here's the outline. Uh, can you say these three phrases with me? What, so what, now what? And as we think about all that, um, Maybe that's, maybe that's where you're at. Over and over again, you've heard the what. But inside your heart today, you're saying, God, I, I'm not trying to be ridiculous. So what? Like, please help me understand how that connects. Would you reveal yourself to me? And then when he does that, I just want you to know, at some point he's going to say, now what? And I want to be real honest with you and say, before this message is over, that's what I'm going to ask you. 
And I'm going to ask you, based on what we're learning about this, is now what? What does this mean for your life from now on? Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about that. Now, before we look at Acts 2, in fact, I'll invite you to open your Bibles right now to Acts 2. If you're not sure where Acts is, it's in the last fifth of your Bible. And if you're using black Bibles, hopefully there's some in the seat racks near you that say NIV. If you pull that out, those black Bibles, it's on page 759 page 759. We're going to look at Acts 2, verses 22 through 41. And the reason we're not going to turn to Psalms is because in this, in these verses in the New Testament of Acts, he actually quotes the verses from Psalms uh, thoroughly. So that's why we're going to do that. It'll actually save us a little time as well. So as you're turning there, let me, uh, let me just give you the first line of the next section in the notes that'll kind of set this up. Okay. And if you're following along, here it is. Jesus calls, quotation marks, calls his own resurrection. Jesus calls his own resurrection. What do I mean by that? Um, nowadays, we use that phrase a lot. We'll say, if someone predicts something and then it actually comes true or happens, we go, he called it. Or she called it beforehand. Wow, they called it. And probably the most well-known story that's often been told is the legendary story of Babe Ruth, the baseball player. Uh, evidently, he had met a little boy that was sick in the hospital, and he had promised him a home run in the next day's game. But evidently, he uh, raised the stakes even higher that when he came up to bat that day, he pointed, I think it was somewhere in, near center field, and then in just a few pitches later, he absolutely clobbered the ball right in that same spot. And people went, he called it! I mean, he, he pointed there, and he, he did it. He pulled it off. He called it. Now, here's why I'm telling you this. Jesus called his own resurrection. This isn't something that the other disciples made up. They, they had no category. A lot of times we think the disciples were going, okay, when's he going to be raised from the dead? They weren't hanging around wondering about that. In fact, they didn't get it. So I've listed out to the right, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, the places that Jesus actually says, the Son of Man must suffer, must be killed, and on the third day be raised again. Okay. He said that three times to them in his teaching. It was very clear, but it didn't, they didn't get it. It's kind of like me. I, I, you can, I could read it over and over again, and I didn't get the connection. Now, here's one place in Mark 9, 9 and 10. There's a spot where Jesus has just been transfigured, like his clothes became like lightning. And Peter, James, and John witnessed this, and they're coming down from the mountain after that experience, like it blew all their circuits, right? And it says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They, they're like, what, like, what is he talking about? See? So this was something that was, they, that was unfolding for them, but they didn't get that until Jesus connected the dots. So Jesus calls his own resurrection, and now Peter after Jesus has been raised again, stands up in the same city that Jesus had been killed in, and he speaks courageously. Now, we're talking about Peter. Do you all remember Peter's, you know, resume? Just two months earlier, had Peter been courageous in this same city? Not a chance. Even when a servant girl said, I think you're one of him that followed Jesus, he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. But now Peter is a different person. Why? Because he's met Jesus resurrected. And it's completely different than when he walked with him for three years before the resurrection. 
So uh, I'm going to read those verses with you. And uh, as, before I do, here's the second line in the notes. Peter and Paul link Psalm 16 to Christ's resurrection. Peter and Paul link Psalm 16 to Christ's resurrection. Now, why do I mention both Peter and Paul? If you want to read more about how Psalm 16 is also referred to uh, besides Acts 2, if you go to Acts 13, Paul incorporated Psalm 16 as evidence of, of, of the Messiah being foretold that he would raise again. I'm just not going to concentrate on both passages today. But I'm going to come back to some of the things that God also showed Paul later in this message. But let's look at Peter's sermon in Acts 22. I'll start in verse 22. If you don't know the context of this, um, about, again, six weeks after Jesus' uh, crucifixion and resurrection, there's what's called the day of Pentecost. He had told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to arrive. And when the Holy Spirit fell on his followers... They began to speak in other languages. Languages, by the way, that were represented by all the people that were in that city. So they weren't just speaking gobbledygook. They were actually declaring the wonders of God to these people in their own language, and it drew a huge crowd. And when the crowd drew, Peter says, you're probably wondering what's going on. I'm going to explain it to you from Scripture. He's already talked about Joel 2 being fulfilled. Now he goes on and picks it up in verse 22. Follow along with me if you would. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. In other words, he's saying, you know I'm not making this up. You know the word that's been going around the entire region. He's been doing this stuff. You, you yourselves know it. Again, notice, he's no longer scared. He's able to talk to them and reason with them as people. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him now he quotes Psalm 16. David, who is the writer of Psalm 16, said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. If you want to read this later, it's Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Now, let me pause for just a second and say this. He's reasoning with them, and he's saying, if this was about David, if David was writing about himself, then we have a problem. Because we're here in the city of David, and his tomb is still occupied. And you can go check that out. 
So I'm reasoning with you. David wasn't writing about himself. He was a prophet. He could see ahead. He was writing about the Messiah. And what I'm about to tell you is that Jesus is that Messiah. And so he goes on in verse 33. He says this, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, this is Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now look at verse 36 with me. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Some of your translations say Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just as we have. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Verse 40, with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone kept being filled with awe at the things God was doing. Now, let me just talk to you about several words that stand out to me that I think will be helpful as we think about this, okay? The first one, if you're following along, is accredited. You'll notice in verse 22, he says, this man, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, okay, um, this man uh, has been accredited by God to you through miracles, signs, and wonders, which you yourselves know about. Now, accredited, what's accredited mean? Sometimes we are used to it being used for education, colleges, universities, uh, sometimes for hospitals, other things like that. Our own uh, Memorial Medical Center uh, was recently given a national award, and in order to be accredited with that, they had to literally have all kinds of boxes checked before that could, be, uh, that could happen. And uh, I used to go to Lincoln Christian Seminary in the 1980s when I was a youth pastor here. And that was before Lincoln Christian Seminary just up the road was accredited. So there was a professor uh, in our theology classes that used to every once in a while stop and do this. He'd go, what do you guys expect to learn in this unaccredited cornfield anyway? <laughs> and he was kind of making fun of the fact that, 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 that while they weren't accredited, they were in the process. And he was just teasing. He's saying, do you expect to learn anything even if we're not completely accredited? So... Accredited, what's the definition if you're following along? Here it is. is uh, to be accredited means to be officially recognized, and it means that the requirements are fully met. The requirements are fully met. So Peter's standing up and he's saying, look, what I'm telling you is that God has accredited Jesus to you, which means that he has shown you in every possible way Every box has been checked about Jesus, including what I'm about to tell you, that he's alive. The Messiah was meant to be raised again after suffering on our behalf, and I'm telling you, he's checked that box too. He's accredited by God to you. 
Now, this is a very interesting thing, and just keep that in mind. In other words, what he's saying is God's done everything necessary to show you that he's the Messiah. Next, notice that what he summarizes in this message is that David foretells, David foretells, F-O-R-E-T-E-L-L-S, David foretells and Jesus fulfills the Messiah being raised. So he says, what's going on in Psalm 16 is that God enabled David to foretell that the Messiah's body would not see decay. He would not be left to the realm of the dead, but that he would be led in the path, a different path, the path of life where he would be able to sit at the right hand of God. And when he's saying all this, uh, he, what he's talking about, friends, is not something where people go, you know, isn't that just a lovely concept of resurrection? He's saying, no, no, no. We're talking about a bodily resurrection that is a historical fact, a scientific reality. Yes, it would normally be impossible, but it is not impossible with God. In fact, because he prophesied it, it was impossible for death to hold Jesus. And so just an amazing thing he's proclaiming, and this would have made most people's heads spin, but he's saying, God has showing this to you. He's, he's, he's revealing himself to you. Are you listening? And so he continues to preach this. The next thing I want you to see is that he adds this. And, and I'm, I'm including, again, Acts 13 as well and 1 Corinthians 15 when I say this. But Peter and Paul are witnesses of Jesus resurrected. Peter and Paul are witnesses of Jesus resurrected. You know in a court of law, you've got to bring evidence. You've got to bring witnesses. So he says, look, first you have the witness of Scripture. God prophesied this. So I just expounded that to you. Now I want to tell you there's another witness. And one of them is me. I didn't just hear about this. I didn't just know these Bible verses. I met him after he rose again. He's alive. He totally changed my mind. It's the reason I can stand in front of you today with any courage at all. It's true. You can write me off. You can blow me off. You can deny scripture, but it's true. And I'm pleading with you to accept my testimony about Jesus because the so what and the now what of everything is on that. So incredible thing here. And Paul would eventually say that in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I, I believe we have 1 Corinthians 15, 8 as well up here. It says, in, yeah, those verses too. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. It's hard to have a hallucination with that many people, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying you could actually go talk to most of them, although some of them have died. Then he appeared to James, his brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. In other words, I, I was a little later on the Damascus Road, but he appeared to me. I, I've met him. I'm a witness. So <clears throat> when they're talking about this now, I want to just stop and say this. This is the what. This was the message. God foretold it. He fulfilled it in Jesus. That's the what. The question is, so what? Like, how does that change when you walk out of the doors today? You walk to your car, you spend the time this week. How does it change anything in your life? In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes the most incredible chapter on the resurrection of Jesus in the whole Bible. 
And so when he writes this, I can't, again, expound all 58 verses to you, but I want to just give you some of the snippets from it, okay? And uh, here's the first thing he does after he has told them that this was of first importance and all that. He says, hey, some of you are telling me that there's people saying that there was no resurrection of the dead and that Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. So let's just talk about that for a little bit. He says, if that hasn't happened, if Christ hasn't been raised, do you know what that means for you? Let's talk about the so what. So if you're following along, here's what he says in verses 12 through 19 in summary. If Jesus isn't raised, then that means that our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then the whole redemptive plan that God was working out has not been fulfilled. And he uses words like we're lost. He uses words like uh, what we've preached to you means that we're liars. And also he says your faith is useless. It's worthless. In fact, if you have any loved ones who also have been trusting in Jesus and they've already died, uh, they have nothing to look forward to. They have no good news to, to, to look forward to, only bad news. And then he says, if we only hope in Christ for this life, we are people most to be pitied. We're like pitiful people. If we put any, if Jesus hasn't been raised, everything is off the table. And why, what he means by this is not, um, well, you'll just die and then your candle will go out. He means we will die in our sins, separated from God for eternity. This is really bad news. And this is really true. And for the most part, it's harder for us in this generation to believe it. If Christ has not been raised, you and I, our faith is useless and futile, and we are still in our sins. But, he says, verse 19, Christ has been raised. And if Christ is raised, let's play that one out. Because this is good news for anyone who will depend on him and let him be the Lord of their life. And so what he says is this. If Christ, if Jesus is raised, then he offers you his hope, his riches, his power, his love. Now, I try to figure out there is so much that could be said about what the resurrection accomplished and the so what of it. If you read 1 Corinthians 15 alone, he'll just go down the line of some of those things. And I can't summarize all of that. And then he talks about it in other places. So here's what I decided to do. In Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, sometimes people say to me, Jeff, how should I pray for my loved ones? Or how should I pray for other Christians? Or any ideas about how to pray? Well, here's some great prayers in Ephesians 1 and 3 that Paul prays for fellow Christians. And in it, you're going to notice that he mentions hope, riches, power, and love. So here's the first prayer. For this reason, Paul says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking. Let's read those three words again together. I keep asking. Friends, do do you just need the Lord to reveal himself to you one time? No. So he says, because this is an ongoing thing of learning how to walk with the Lord, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him even better than you know him already. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened, may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now here's the second prayer. So hope, riches, power, right? Now look at the second prayer in Ephesians 3. Again, I've listed these out to the right in case you want to look at these later. I pray that out of his glorious riches, there's riches again, he may strengthen you with power. There's power again. Through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in his love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for you and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations even 2017, forever and ever. Amen. Is anybody glad Jesus rose from the dead? So let me just say, hope. What's hope mean? Hope's not a flimsy word like we use before tests when we haven't studied. I hope I pass. It's a great word. Hope means that when you are getting shaken, there is something that will hold you still. And the hope beyond the grave is that we can go through whatever because this life is not all there is, but yet we can know hope in it. Hope. Man, some people say, how did they go through that? They had hope. Second, riches. We live in a country that just worships money. And money in itself is not bad. But you know true riches are relational, right? The greatest riches there are in life are people. And so, the person of the Holy Spirit, he gives us the richness of the Holy Spirit being able to live in us. We can have a relationship with God, third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, who makes Jesus real to us. And then we have the body of Christ. I don't know what I do sometimes without people with skin on that name the name of Jesus and walk with him. The body of Christ, the riches we have in that, alone is just an amazing thing to celebrate. Can I give you one more? I mentioned this, my mom in the last couple of services, you know, mom, the last 40 years you've been going through a lot with your body and you've told me that you love the fact that one of the riches is that because Christ has been raised again, he can raise us again and give us a new body, a resurrection body. Have you thought about this? This morning I got up early and just read this section. That means that the new body will not be like the body we have now, in the sense that this new body will be imperishable. This new body will not be limited by aging or by sickness or by death or by space and time. This new body will enable us to be free to worship God without sin pulling us down. This new body will enable us to stand in the glory of God without perishing because he's made us to be like his son. We will have a body like his glorious body. This is all that Jesus made possible. This is all he broke wide open with his resurrection. And so it's just amazing riches. I got to go on. The power, the power 
Have you learned that you don't have enough power to live the Christian life or even face some of the things you face? But do you know that he gives us power instead of being selfish, power to serve, power to love, power to look at things differently, his power working through us to do things we could not do for his kingdom and for his sake. And the last one is love. The one reason he rose again more than any other was to show us that he loved us enough to not keep us in our situation, but raise us up out of it. And when he loved us like that, he says, I know, I know you don't feel lovable. I love you anyway. And I want to love you in such a way that you'll have love to pass on, even to people that don't like you either. And I want to change your life. My resurrection opens all the possibilities of this up. Hope, riches, power, love. Praise his name. Now, Peter gets done preaching about this. He talks about the so what. You know, he's made this Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. And I want to just say something to you. This is big. If he's the Lord and he's the Messiah, then what we do with him matters. I mean, you may say, well, Jeff, you know, after we leave church here, the real stuff happens. You know, like, I got to get back to real life. Well, just know that all of history is moving towards Christ. If Jesus has been accredited by God, that means you're going to stand before him. He's going to be our judge one day. We're going to give an account to him. Whether you have him factored in your life at all, he's, you're going to stand before him. That's an amazing thing. So notice what he does next, if you're following along. Peter and Paul warn and plead with the people to believe and not refuse. Peter and Paul warn and plead to believe and not refuse. I was interested as I studied this week. A lot of times when we preach in churches, we tell you all the information. We even tell you so what, but we never do the now what. Okay? So that there's, there's, there's a lot more positive and not as much warning and pleading in preaching sometimes, in my own even. And I was really struck by this. So notice that it says, Peter, with many other words, warned them, and he pleaded with them. Now this is interesting, warning them. What he's saying is, there is a danger if you blow this off. He pleaded with them. That meant he says, look, even if you guys think I'm crazy, you think I'm a fool, I'm willing to humiliate myself in front of you because I care about you enough that you need to know this good news. This is for you. It's not just for me. It's not just for us. God has a bigger heart than that. He cares about you. I'm pleading with you to take this seriously because your whole life, this is the so what and the now what of that. And when he pleads with them like that, and so uh, and Paul did the same thing. He says, don't be like the people that scorn and mock. Now, here's the thing that Peter says. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He doesn't mean save yourselves on your own. He means by your response to Jesus, save yourself from where everyone else is going. Okay? So here's what I picture. Some of us have seen movies uh, <clears throat> where there's a big river moving very quickly downstream. And it's going towards an edge where everything drops off and there's rocks down below. I think what Peter's saying is, you're part of a group of people that not only crucified Jesus, you didn't believe him. You didn't believe he was the Messiah. And if you keep floating down the river like that, you're going to destruction. Save yourselves. Step out of that kind of group mindset and become part of a new community that believes differently. Save yourselves that way. And, and it's just a powerful word of warning. So it leads to this now what? Okay, so let me try and bring this home. 
And the way I want to do that is that Jesus, when he talked about the scriptures and how they point to him and testify about him, he had something to say. So read this second box with me, if you would, out loud. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you've been studying the scriptures a lot. It's just that you have not been willing to realize they're about me. And the reason they're about me is not just so I can say, look at me, they're about me because I'm the only one that can give you life. You may have existed for years, but you've never lived if you don't know me, Jesus is saying. And if you refuse to come to me to have life, you'll miss it. Don't refuse. So here's my question. Am I refusing or have I come to Jesus to have life? Where does this message find you today? Are you part of that group of people that are floating down that way and saying, I, I, don't, I don't care about Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if God's accredited him. Well, today he's, he's revealing this to you so that you can say, no, 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 I can't keep thinking like that. That's been mistaken thinking. I need to change my mind and stop refusing to come to him. I'll just tell you, once, once he showed me the so what, I was amazed at how real he was, but here's where the battle really started in my heart. I realized he was the Lord. (gasps) And he wanted my whole surrender. And I was going, wait a second, I I think I can do my life pretty good. You know, if you want to do part-time with me, Jesus. He says, I want to be the Lord. I'm the Lord. Will you submit to me as Lord? I've come to give you life. And I said, that sounds like you're taking away my life if you become the Lord. No, he says, I can only give you life as your Lord. And so that's where the battle came. And he says, don't refuse me. Don't keep pushing me away. Don't keep thinking you do better. So some of you are here today and you're saying, you know, wow, this is really challenging. And can I just tell you, it is challenging. Because here's, I want to just warn you. If you don't have Christ, you don't have life. And I'm not, that's not my words. Look at 1 John 5, 10 through 13. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Years ago, I used to go visit Jack Hayford, Pastor Jack Hayford out in California. I think I've mentioned this before, but we would spend a week with him. And I was usually with a bunch of other pastors from a different tradition than I was from. And so they, one day they named a well-known pastor who had had a real impact on my own life over the years. And they said it kind of mockingly and kind of jesting. They said, what do you think about so-and-so? I'll never forget Jack Hayford's response. He says, well, first of all, you need to know he's a friend of mine. Second of all, I've preached in his church. He's preached in mine. And here's what I've come to know about him as my friend. He really believes that people are going to hell and it bothers him. And I need to be more like that too. I've never forgotten that. Everything in this culture, are you like me? Everything in this culture is rubbing off the intensity of that belief. And therefore, we don't warn anybody. We don't plead with anybody. We just go, hey, you want Jesus like a ham sandwich? No, friends. He's life. 
It's life or death. It's life or death. Have you received him? You could do that right in your seat this morning. But what about those of us that have? Then here's my counsel based on what Peter's saying. Stay humbly hungry for Jesus to reveal himself if you're following along. Stay humbly. How's that for a phrase? Stay humbly hungry for Jesus to reveal himself. Um, I am so aware. Sometimes when I stand down here singing like the rest of you, there's words up on the screen that are talking about some of the things Christ has done or wants to do in our life. I'll just sometimes go, Lord, those are just words to me. Could you help? Could you make that more clear to me? Or could you open my eyes to understand what that really means? And then there's other times where I'll say, Lord, I'm operating under this. I need your perspective. Would you reveal yourself more to me? I've known you in the past. I I need to know you in this, this chapter. It's an ongoing thing. We never outgrow it. I had a buddy uh, taught me years ago. He said, here's Jeff. To get to know Jesus is going to take all eternity. That's how great he is. So he says, in this life, you're going to find yourself many times when he shows you something going, wow, wow. He said, then you get to heaven. He says, and when you get to heaven, it's going to be like this. Wow, 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 wow. He says, it's going to be like that for all eternity. That's how amazing Jesus is. Well, That's part of getting to know him. He's revealed and he's revealing himself to us. This last thing, though, is if Jesus opens our eyes, this is what Mark, Luke 24, excuse me, says, if Jesus opens our eyes, our hearts will burn. If Jesus opens our eyes, our hearts will burn. We've looked at this verse before, but it says that when Jesus taught them all these connections and he connected the dots, it says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. So now I'm all the way back to the beginning. Has your heart ever burned? Do you know him? Have you met him? And if you've met him, are you getting to know him better and better? Because this is what life's about. This is what life's about. This last week, I was in Spain, as I told you, and some of you don't know this news, and so I just want you to be aware of it, but I was in Spain, and I received the news that Barb Straub passed away. And um, Barb, some of us, I only mention her name because she has touched many, many people. She and Frank in our church, she's discipled many other ladies And she and Frank have reached out to a lot of people. They've never had children of their own, but boy, do they have spiritual children, family members. Anyway, I got the news of that. And um, Barb's opened her life enough that I know her story of how when she was a little girl, she didn't come from a very helpful family. And later she would meet Christ and open her life to him as Lord. And I was thinking about it as I was speaking this, because Christ is raised from the dead, That means that right now, Barb is going, wow, 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 for all eternity. God wants this for you. Now what? What will you do? What have you done? How are you responding to him? So in these next few moments, talk with him. Do business with him. And if you have real doubts, tell him. Tell him. But talk to him.